Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. I hope you're having a fabuloso day. Let's start by reading the uh, Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I love reading the Apostles' Creed. I just do. I like it because it's a concise compilation uh, in a nutshell of what the Apostles taught uh, in when they when they're at the beginning of the Christian church in the first century. And I like it because everything we read in the Bible can be traced back to one of these statements. And that's, to me, that is so important. When I was, I've said this before, but uh, when I was an engineer and as a teacher of any subject, and I've taught American history, uh, I've taught, I teach music, music theory, music composition. Um, when I teach something, I like to go from macro to micro. In other words, big picture and work my, draw my way down to the details. Uh, when I'd get an assignment from a client and they wanted a network design, I'd say, all right, at the end of the day, network's design, let's pretend it's all done. Tell me what this network is going to do. And they'll say, well, we want to get, we want to get the Olympic uh, from Sydney, Australia to uh, New York City over your satellites. All right, that's the big picture. And we start drilling down. Okay, well, there's two satellites. So that means we're going to have to bounce it to the satellite to the West Coast. And then we're going to have to run it over uh, and then bounce it back up again to another satellite, which bounces it down to New York City on the East Coast. All right, so that's drilling down a little bit. And then you drill down further. Okay, now how do we get the signal from Sydney up to the satellite on the West Coast? And then you start developing the, it, the more intricate parts of the circuit to accomplish your goals. So start with macro, go to micro. When I'm studying the Bible, I do the same thing. When I'm studying anything, I do the same thing. I look, what is the overall message? Can I reduce what I've learned to a sentence? I worked with a pastor once, and he was uh, discipling me, and his uh, his process was, give me your testimony in 20 minutes. So I spent 20 minutes and told him my story about how I became a Christian. He said, then the next time we got together, he says, all right, now tell me that same story, but you only got 10 minutes. Then next time, tell me your same story, you only have five minutes. And then the last time says, tell me that same story. We're in an elevator. You have two minutes. And so I had to reduce my entire story from everything, all these details, down to one encompassing overall statement. And that's kind of the way I've been approaching reading through the New Testament. I discovered in the Gospel of John 
that all commandments can be encapsulated into two. According to Jesus, love your God, Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so as I'm reading through the New Testament epistles from John, Paul, Peter, etc., I look to see if that's indeed true, if that's the overall, if that's the macro, the big picture. And it is. Almost everything that's stated can be reduced to being a subset under one of those commandments of Jesus that Jesus gave. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, or love your neighbor as yourself. So, having said that, that's why I like the Apostles' Creed. It's the macro. Everything relates to that. That is the heart and soul of the gospel. And that's why I like reading it. Today, we're going to be getting into Hebrews chapter 6. It contains a troubling passage in many ways, and we're going to look and see how I deal with that. Um, Again, please know that I am not coming at this from someone who thinks he's this incredibly wise Bible teacher. I'm just a guy. And this is my morning devotional. I look at the scriptures. I look at the scriptures and I want to see how they fit into my life. I want to pattern my life after what I see in the scripture, I should say. And I want to know what the scripture has to say to me. So that's what you're getting. You're not getting me trying to teach you something. You're getting me trying to teach me something. Uh, I always end these devotionals with that saying, you know, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, but neither are my thoughts your thoughts. You need to learn to think for yourself. And the way you do that is you read the scriptures. What is the scripture saying to you on any given day? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. And today we come across a passage that bothered me in times past. And I, I think I've come to grips with it today. So let's get started. First of all, the first words in chapter 6 are, therefore. So let's find out what that word's therefore. So that means we're going to go to the end of chapter 5. Um, this, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. Here's a statement. But solid food is for the mature who are in a state of maturity such that they can distinguish good from evil. Solid food is for the mature. Therefore, since solid food is for the mature, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. Not laying again the foundation of repentance, which is turning from, from acts that lead to death, useless rituals that cannot impart life. Let's stop right there. Useless rituals that cannot impart life. Um, There, you got to realize, first of all, his audience is a Jewish audience, primarily Hebraic Jews, that have come into the way, which is what they used to call the, the beginning church. Um, the term Christianity wasn't 
widely used until really later. And this Hebraic community, Hebraic Judaistic community that was coming into the way, who were followers of Yeshua, um, there was, uh, you got to understand a little bit about the history here. There were 400 silent years between the last prophet that we read about in the Old Testament and the time of John the Baptist, the last prophet of all, old, last Old Testament prophet, I should say. And in those 400 years, the uh, teaching did not stop being put out by the religious leaders of the Jewish community. Um, there is a, let me see if I can find it here. Let me see if I can find it. Um, I'm going to pull up something here real quick. Uh, here we go. All right, let's see if I can find a place for this. Ah, oh, there we are. I'm going to move over here to this screen here. All right, move this over. There we are. All right, we have in, in the Jewish community, there's a thing called the Torah. And I found uh, several articles that I pulled things from. Torah refers to the five books of Moses, known as the Pentateuch. That's the core of Judaism, which for the Jews, the core part of the Jewish faith and the source of the main law and ethics. Then there's a thing called the Talmud. The Talmud is a record of the rabbinic debates in the second to fifth century on the teachings of the Torah. All right. Trying to understand how they apply and seeking answers for the situations they themselves were encountering. So you might say the Torah are the words of the Old Testament, and the Talmud is teachings and interpretations of these things, applying them to specific life situations. For instance, an example of the former, the Torah, would be the command, thou shalt not kill. But how does this apply to self-defense or times of war? That'd be an example of the Talmud coming in and explaining how to apply that thou shalt not kill command of the Torah to these specific situations. Now, there's also a thing called the Hebrew term Talmud commonly refers to a compilation of ancient teachings regarded as sacred and normative by Jews from the time it was compiled until modern times and is still so regarded by traditional religious Jews. All right. Again, we explained Talmud is application of Torah. In its broadest sense, the Talmud is a set of books consisting of a Mishnah or Gemara and certain auxiliary materials. So the Talmud really can be broken down to several subsets. Here's my point. As the Talmud, as the Torah was, was applied, they came up with a set of things that would uh, allow you to apply the different parts of the law to different aspects of your life. And over time these sayings began to take on a as almost as much of a sacred uh prop as much it was as sacred as the torah itself almost and in some eyes as some people as important now before we jump on the boat here and and start slamming the jewish faith for applying 
uh, a sense of the sacred to a rabbi's interpretation of the sacred, we as Gentiles do the same thing. Stop and think about this for a second. We read the scripture, right? What does the scripture say? Well, one of the first things we do is we go to a commentary. Now, a commentary would be perhaps our Gentile version of the Talmud. Um, we place great a great degree of importance on what Louis Giglio says. And I don't have a problem with that. Louis Giglio, I believe, is an anointed teacher and has wise things to say. Billy Graham, uh, C.S. Lewis. You, you, the Christian community is full of these giants of the faith who bring, who apply their wisdom and their giftedness to interpreting scripture and in their preaching of it, applying it to our lives. That's great. But there's a problem. How do you think these great men of God came to their conclusions about the scripture? They studied the scripture. They thought about it. They applied it to their lives. So, the temptation is to not even read the scripture for ourselves, but instead just apply what Billy Graham says about the scripture or what Louis Giglio says about the scripture or what C.S. Lewis said about this passage or that passage or whoever your favorite Bible teacher is. And when you do that, you're one step removed from what the scripture says to you. Here's, a, here's an example. Uh, I've told this story before of a, of a, a daughter watching her mother prepare the roast for the Sunday meal. And her mother took the roast out of the refrigerator, cut off both ends of the roast, put it in the roast pan, stuck it in the oven. Mama, why did we cut off the ends of the roast? She says, my mom always did that. So I do it. Well, they had Sunday dinner and grandma, the mother's mother was there. And the daughter, the granddaughter asked the grandmother, grandma, my mama cuts the ends off the roast before she puts it in the oven. And she said, you taught her that. Why, why do we cut the ends of the roast off? And her grandmother says, oh, that's easy, sweetheart. When I was young, that's what my mother did. But my mother did it because she didn't have a pan that was big enough to hold the roast. So she would cut off the ends of the roast so it could fit in the pan she had. Do you get the point? What was necessary for her great-grandmother's generation, because the pan was too small, is no longer applicable to this generation. That's something you don't need to do anymore. You don't need to cut the ends of the roast off anymore because your pan is big enough. Well, man's teachings fall to the wayside. It's almost like they have a many of man's teachings about what the scripture says to do in this situation, that situation. It's like it has a lifespan. And sometimes it reaches a point where it's no longer applicable. To place your faith in a man's interpretation of scripture over that of the scripture is terribly wrong. And many, many believers and Jewish believers, Judaistic believers, did that. And some still do. They'll say, Rabbi so-and-so says this. And that becomes the end all in, the, in a discussion. We are called to 
read the scripture ourselves, apply it ourselves. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do here. Yes, I give credence and I and I see the value in what Billy Graham says or what Louis Giglio says, and I will take what they say into consideration after I go to the scripture myself. I want to know what the scripture says to me. And then I go to these other sources to see if me is off base or not. But can you see the issue here? So we're moving beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. Be taken forward to maturity, not laying in the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death or useless rituals that cannot impart life and faith in turning to God, instruction about cleansing rites, which is like different baptisms or washing rituals, the laying on of hands for the sick or for commissioning or for bestowal of blessing, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, either when this verdict's rendered at the day of judgment after death or the verdict itself, and God permitting, we will do so. There are, uh, there is great value in those who have come before us who have applied their wisdom to the scripture. We are required to examine the scripture ourselves personally before we go to them. And I try to do that. And by doing so, we can avoid uh, useless rituals that cannot impart life. You don't have to cut the ends of the roast off anymore. There was a reason for doing that. It's like, let's say there was a law that said, thou shalt not let a 10-year-old child touch the stove, top of the stove, lest their hands be burned. And somebody come along and says, you know, to keep that child safe, we should say, we should add a, a, a something onto that saying, no child should get within six feet of the stove so they don't touch the stove and get burned. Hmm. Then someone comes along and says, you know, what if this child falls and reaches his hands out? Let's say the child shouldn't even come into the kitchen. So the last command, thou shalt not go into the, let a 10-year-old child into the kitchen, is really far removed from the original command, don't touch the stove. Well-intentioned, uh, and it does keep the child from touching the stove, but that wasn't the command. The command wasn't stay out of the kitchen. The command was don't touch the stove. So there's nothing wrong with tradition. There's nothing wrong with looking to what wise men say or apply to the scripture. When you go to church, you have gifted teachers and pastors that preach and teach the gospel. Okay, that's great. Teachers teach, students learn. I get that. But don't place the teacher of the scripture over the scripture itself. And you're going to see that that's going to be an issue here. So, it's impossible, here's the part that used to really bug me about this chapter. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, who and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. All right, I stayed away from this passage for a long time. It's kind of scary because it says, Somebody has once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and yet they fell away. Sounds like a Christian could lose his salvation. That's a big question. I got this 
uh, some excerpts from an article here. I'll just read it to you. Can Christians lose their salvation? While the Hebrews warning passages seem to suggest it's possible for Christians to lose their salvation, across the history of the church, numerous interpreters have read them as referring to those who initially profess a faith in Christ, but whose apostasy proves their faith was not genuine. We're gonna read this verse in a minute, 1 John 2.19. To put it another way, a faith that does not endure was not ever a true faith. Uh, that was, but it was only the appearance of faith, lacking roots, as in the parable in Mark. In this view, such expressions as enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, indicate that such persons had come under the influence of God's covenant blessings and had professed to turn from darkness to light, yet they were in danger of a public and final rejection of Christ, proving they'd never been regenerated. And as Israel could not enter the promised land after exploring the region and tasting its fruit, so the professing Christians of that first audience would not be able to repent if they adamantly turned against the light they'd received. Now here's what John had to say in his epistle. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So John's explanation of what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that it's possible for someone to be part of you and then leave you. And the reason they left is because they really were not part of you. Let's keep on going. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those to whom it's farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Couple things. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, produces a crop useful to those from its farm, receives the blessing of God. Now, there's land that receives the rain falling on it. That's a blessing of God. But it doesn't produce anything but thorns and thistles. That land was not any good. It's possible this means that this is not a land that once produced fruit and now does not. This is land that never produced fruit. Therefore, this represents someone who initially professed faith in Messiah Yeshua, but never embraced the apostolic teachings and reverts back to traditional Judaism. It is possible for unbelievers to experience the blessings of God. People who come to church who aren't true believers can still be blessed by the work of the church by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They can even be healed. They can be blessed monetarily. They can be blessed in any number of ways by association. But when push comes to shove, they'll fall away if they have not bowed their knee to Christ. Even though we speak of things like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. Truly saved people produce fruit. That's what John says. Those that left us didn't really belong to us. Changed lives and works of love suggest that most of these people in this letter of Hebrews, who it was addressed to, suggest that most of them were indeed regenerated. God's not unjust. He won't forget your work 
and the love you've shown in him as you've helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit, inherit what has been promised. Now, I got an article right here. This was, uh, this states my point wonderfully well. Is the doctrine perseverance of the saints biblical? Perseverance of the saints is what the Presbyterians would call it. Reformed theology calls it. Uh, in Baptist circles, we call it once saved, always saved. Let me read this. This truth is seen in Ephesians 1, 13, 14, where we see that believers are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. When we are born again, we receive the promised indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that is God's guarantee that he who began a good work in us will complete it. That's Philippians. In order for us to lose our salvation after receiving the promised Holy Spirit, God would have to break his promise or renege on his guarantee, his seal, which he cannot do. Therefore, the believer is eternally secure because God is eternally faithful. Our salvation and our perseverance in it is on God, it's not on us. We couldn't do enough to get saved. We can't do enough to stay saved. Another evidence from scripture of the eternal security of the believer is found in John 5, 24, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Notice that eternal life is not something we get in the future, but is something we have once we believe now. By its very nature, eternal life must last forever. Otherwise, it couldn't be eternal. This passage says that if we believe the gospel, we have eternal life and will not come into judgment. Therefore, it can be said that we are eternally secure. Now, I, I shared all that to say that using scripture to interpret scripture means that when confronted with the scripture passage that could have two interpretations, you search to see if there are other passages that address the same question but only have one interpretation. In this case, the chapter in Hebrews could mean a true believer could lose his or her salvation or it might it doesn't necessarily have to mean that. There's two possible interpretations. Which one is correct? Well, we see from Jesus' own words that he will not lose anybody given to him and that we are sealed permanently with the Holy Spirit upon our conversion. Therefore, this passage in Hebrews 6 cannot mean that those who are truly saved can lose a salvation. Therefore, we are compelled to find another explanation which is tied to the original audience for this letter. In other words, converts from Judaism to the way. It must mean people who are part of the body, the local body, the church, who have not given their hearts to Christ, but still are touched by the blessings of God to that body, they are still in danger of falling away, going back to where they came from. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now people swear by someone greater than themselves. You know, I swear in my mother's grave. <laughs> hear that all the time. Uh, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. 
a lot of times a Christian will say, in the name of Jesus, this is what is said. That's supposedly puts an end to the argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. All right, I'll close with this. God made the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. That's us. All right? God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's possible God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope, we who have bowed our knee to Messiah, may be greatly encouraged. You're secure. Why are you encouraged? You're secure. The one who saves you is the one that keeps you. He didn't save you to lose you. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. They follow me. I and my father are one and no one can take them out of my father's hands. We are as secure as secure can be. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Mm. All right, now he is setting the stage to talk about Melchizedek in more detail and his relationship to Jesus. So with that, I think I'll just close. This is Paige. Here's my coffee. Ladles and jelly spoons. I am out of here. thoughts are not our thoughts. Neither should my thoughts be your thoughts. Cry out loud, think for yourself.